Welcome to CCC. My name is Greg Gertis. Um, been here for a couple years now, and uh, my wife and children are here as well. So today, we're going to be talking about wrestling with God. And when you bring up the word wrestling, um, I can't help but think of my youth and the countless, countless wrestling matches between my younger brother and I. Rarely did any playtime go by where it didn't end up in some form of a wrestling match. And then we were often um, told to take it outside by our parents. Um, now, before you think I'm a mean older brother who's picking on his younger brother, you need to understand one thing. My younger brother has been bigger than me since I was six years old. He is a large boy and he continues, he still is bigger than me. His shoulders are out to here, very strong guy. Um, one of our most epic battles, though, was um, on my mom's living room couch that she had refinished. And uh, I had come home from college, and he was still in high school, and we started going at it on this couch. And my mom from the other room said, boys, get off your, that couch, you're going to break it. And uh, being, you know, obedient children, we, of course, continued to wrestle until we heard <laughs> Well, you would think two strong 19, 18 and 19 year old boys would be able to stand up to an old 55 year old man, right? My father came in the room and gave us a look of, I can still put you over my knee right now. And if she gives the word, I'm gonna do it too. Well, needless to say, we no longer wrestled on mom's couch. We did learn a lesson there. So today we're going to look at a story actually of two boys and um, who also probably did a lot of wrestling. One of them who wrestled with God. And he was a man whose life is a constant struggle when we look at it. He's a duplicitous, conniving, backstabbing trickster of a man. A man who used manipulation and scheming to reach his own personal goals. Our character is found in Genesis uh, 32, and if you've started a, a, this year to do a, a reading through the Bible, you should be about, about here right now, so this should really uh, um, make a lot of sense to you if you've been reading in a one-year program. Now, the book of Genesis, known as the book of beginnings, is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love speaking from the book of Genesis, and the reason is, is that Genesis is the foundation to understanding everything else in the Bible. You know, every ma major theological concept has its origin in the book of Genesis, from salvation to justification to blood atonement. All these have their roots in Genesis. And, and it's as relevant today as it was back then. You know, we learn from Moses that God is showing us his backside, his creative power, his magnificent glory, and his love for man. And so why would this be important to us living today in a completely different time frame and different place? Well, let me tell you something. <clears throat> Our Father is the unchanging, everlasting Lord of all. He's the same today as He was back then as He will be in the future. And, and when we study Him back there then, we start learning more about Him. And we can apply it to our present day life. And we can also think about the fate, the promises he's made for us in the future. So we'll read from the book of Genesis. But before, can we just, can I open with some prayer a minute? 
So Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the people gathered here today in worship of you. Thank you for bringing them here today, despite the snow, for keeping them safe in their travels. Be with our other brethren scattered around the world in sickness and in health, in peace or wartime, and let them be filled by the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, to the scripture today. May your anointing come upon this place, that we may be blessed and grow deeper in a personal face-to-face relationship with you. Amen. So today's scripture, very short. So God, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Jacob is left alone, and a man wrestles with him till daybreak. Our story here is about a wrestler and who wrestles to the break of dawn. Who is he? Why is he here? And who is this guy wrestling with him? To truly understand this, though, we're going to jump back a few chapters in Genesis and uncover some, a little bit of complex background about this character. And we're going to try to, take, I'm going to, try to give you a panoramic view of Jacob um, so you better understand him. You see, Jacob was a wrestler before he was even born. They talk about inside um, Rebekah's womb in Genesis 25, the babies jostled within her. And she inquired of the Lord, why is this happening? And the Lord said to her, two nations in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the two boys were birthed, the first came out red and hairy, and they called him Esau, which means hairy. And they sometimes call him Edom, which is red. All right? After this, his brother came out holding on to his ankle. So he was called Jacob, which means grasp the heel. And what I also found out is a Hebrew idiom for supplanter or one who deceives. Very interesting. And I'm not picking on anybody whose name is Jacob in here. All right? It's just part of the story. So... We learn that Esau grew to be a skillful, skillful hunter and loved his father Isaac. Well, Jacob was content to stay at home um, among the tents and loved his mother Rebekah, and she loved him. And the two twins couldn't have, been, couldn't have been more different except for one similarity. Neither of these boys followed the God of their father Isaac and their grandfather Abraham. The God who had led Abraham from Ur via Haran and landed him in the prom- put him in the promised land. The God who promised Abraham his offspring would be like the stars of the sky and that all nations would be blessed through him. But this Jacob, he, even though he didn't trust this Lord or he didn't follow this God, he was a crafty one. He was wily and, and, and And he realized, hey, you know what? There's something, though, that I need to pay attention to, and that's this birthright thing. You see, according to the ancient law at that time called primogeniture, if I think I got that right, primogeniture, all right, the father was required to give a double portion to his firstborn. This was done in order to avoid favoritism. You might have multiple wives, or you might have a mother who likes a different child. This was to avoid any of that. It goes to that firstborn son. And even though these were twin boys, Esau came out first, and so he's that firstborn. Now, as a young man hearing the story about Jacob and Esau as we're getting into it, I never liked this guy. In fact, I liked Esau quite a bit better. I liked the idea of the hunter who was, who was tied in with his father and not the guy who is staying home with mom, right? And he's going to get even worse as we go along. 
So the first mention, really, of Jacob living up to his name as deceiver comes many years later, and the boys, um, boys are older, and Esau is out hunting. And I reckon this isn't the first time these two have had an issue together. And Esau comes back from the field, and he's hungry. And his younger brother takes advantage of him in his weary and hungry condition and, and has him exchange his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, neither boy was thinking very clearly here. This was not a good decision on either one of them. The second one, the second time Jacob, uh, Jacob lives up to his name is in Genesis 27. Isaac is in his older years and his eyes are weak, much like mine. I must be on the Isaac track right now. And Isaac tells a son whom he loves that the time has come. Go hunt some wild game. Prepare it for me that I might bless you. Jacob takes advantage of his father's old age and blindness and pretends he is Esau. But this time, he is not without an accomplice. This scam was a team effort orchestrated by his mother, Rebecca, who encouraged him to deceive her husband. <clears throat> Don't deceive your husband. Jacob doesn't, this is the interesting thing, Jacob doesn't argue with his mom. In fact, the only question is, what if he catches us? All right, we see his character here. This is a trickster. The Bible says that during that scam, Jacob tricked his father three times. So blind Isaac inquires, who is this? And he goes, I am Esau, your firstborn. And Isaac says, come close that I can touch you. And Jacob, his mother, they had taken the goat skin and placed it on his forearm because uh, as you remember Esau's hairy and they feel that this is the second time he he's manipulating and tricking his father and then finally and they also put clothes on him so he smelled like Esau and finally Isaac still kind of doubtful says are you really my son Esau and Jacob declares I am then he kisses him so we don't have time to get into this but this is doesn't this sound a little bit familiar to something that happens in the New Testament Jacob denies who he is three times, and then he deceives his father with a kiss. So let's keep going on. We hear Esau returns and, and from hunting, and when he learns out that Jacob has been scheming his father and taking his blessing, he's furious. He cries out loudly and bitterly, bless me too, father. Isn't he rightly named Jacob the deceiver? He took my birthright, and now he's taking my blessing. He continues, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Evidently, Esau has had enough of his uh, younger brother, this trickster. Well, Rebecca hears this, and she knows the law of the land. And she knows if Esau kills Jacob, then the law will require Esau to be put to death as well. So she quick comes up with a plan to get Jacob to go back to where she came from, back to Haran. Now, remember Haran, that's where Abraham came from. So we're actually having a family go backwards instead of forwards, if we could pull up the map. So if we look down and way down in this corner by me is Ur, where Abraham comes from. That's his modern-day Basra, Iraq, where Iraq and Kuwait are at. He goes up to Haran, and Haran's up where the yellow and the green come together and the red, and that's where modern-day Syria and Turkey meet. And then he comes down to Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. Jacob's now going back up to that Syria-Turkish border. On his way there, he has his first encounter with God. Jacob has a dream of a stairway to heaven that you may have heard of called Jacob's Ladder. And there God promises Jacob descendants on the land where he is lying. 
Descendants like the dust of the earth, and they will spread in all directions. He promises him that all people on earth will be blessed through him and his offspring, that he will watch over Jacob and bring him back, and that he will not leave him. This is clearly a continuation of God's promise to Abraham. And Jacob calls his place Bethel, which means house of God. Now, during this meeting, though, Jacob actually, he acknowledges God and accepts him as his conditional God, his if-then relationship with God is what I would say. Do you guys know what an if-then relationship with God? Let me, let me put it down to you. Oh, Lord, if you please take care of this problem I'm dealing with, I, I promise this time I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to do what you want. If, if you please take care of, if you just help me out of this one situation, then I will do something. And, and by the way, Lord, I just want to let you know that, you know, it's, you know, quite a, quite a high accolade for you to be considered my God anyways. Right? Come on. Have we all been there? We all have had that if-then relationship with God. So Jacob is still trying to use his manipulative ways and charming ability to, you know, to control, to manipulate God. But he's really going to find out he's only fooling himself. Well, poor school, schemer Jacob meets his match when he arrives in Haran, and he encounters his uncle Laban. See, you see, Laban is Rebekah's uh, brother, and this whole family is full of con artists. Laban tricks Jacob into working seven years for his daughter Rachel, but then he switches it so he gets Leah, and then he makes him work another seven years to really get the, the woman he wants, which is Rachel, and then he gets him to work six more years to just increase his wealth. 20 years of working for Uncle Laban. But, if, um, but um, what Laban just doesn't, doesn't realize is God has promised Jacob he will protect him and take care of him. And as time goes on, no matter how much Laban is taking advantage of Jacob, God is taking care of Jacob. Not because of Jacob's efforts, not because of his wisdom, his intellect, his charming abilities, or his scheming. But rather, it's because it's God's will. Well, after 20 years of Laban's trickeries, God tells Jacob, it's time to go back home. And he specifically tells Jacob, I will be with you. So Jacob, who is more than happy to get up from underneath the oppression of Laban, decides listening to God is, hey, this is to my advantage. Ah, must be good. You know, it's to my advantage. I'll listen to God this time. So Jacob goes to Laban and says, listen, father-in-law, thank you so much for your daughters. Um, I've appreciated working here, and now I have all my livestock and I'm rich. No, he sneaks away and gets about a three-day head start on Laban before Laban figures out what's going on. In fact, Laban has to chase him down for a week just to say goodbye to his grandkids. All right? And he's not really happy when they meet at that time. Only by the protection of God, Laban doesn't kill Jacob. So Jacob continues on his journey and arrives at the Jabbok River. He is now in a tight spot. He's got his angry father-in-law behind him. And in front of him is his brother Esau. Remember that great warrior who was outraged and promised to kill him 20 years earlier? So Jacob does the smart thing. He sends out a recon party to find out, well, what are we going to do here? Let's see how bad, you know, this thing, this relationship with Esau is. 
It's not good. Aesop's waiting for him with 400 men. And remember, Esau's a warrior, and warriors surround themselves with warriors. So these are some really bad dudes that are waiting for Jacob to come back with all, the, all his, his family and livestock. In great distress, Jacob divides his family into two groups. And he figures out, well, when Esau attacks, maybe one of the groups will be able to escape the slaughter. And you got to remember, God told Jacob to go back. He told him, I will protect you. I go back to this land. But evidently, Jacob feels God isn't strong enough for this. So, so what, what does Jacob do? He sends a gift to Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. This is 550 livestock as a gift. We all know in Beijing what this is. It's called a bribe, right? He's a little trying, how do I, how do I soften a little guanxi here, right? So can you feel the story starting to crescendo here? We're starting to get a good point. And you have a picture who Jacob is. So now in chapter 32, verses 9 through 12, we see that Jacob's starting to break down. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Actually, Jacob's in a good place here, right? He's, he's seeking the Lord, all right? And why? Because he's tired. He's at the end of his scheming. He's exhausted. And we're not just talking physical tired. We're not talking walking all day long and being physically tired. He's mentally tired. He's emotionally tired. He's tired of all of his manipulation and trying to control the situation. All the schemes that he's put together are catching up to him, and he's really in a bad place. He's angry. His angry, you know, scheming father-in-law behind him, his... his his revengeful, revengeful brother in front of him. He has wives now to protect and children. He has 11 boys and a daughter to protect. And he's out of solutions. The problem has just become too big for Jacob. Can you guys relate? Have you been there where the problem is just too big for you? So you remember how I said earlier, I, don't, I really didn't like Jacob? Well, I think... During my walk with God, I've come to the realization that one of the reasons I don't like Jacob is because there's a little bit of Jacob in me. And you probably don't want to admit there's a little bit of Jacob in you as well. And you're going, God, keep this hidden from other people. God brought me to similar circumstances about 15 years ago. And I wasn't facing 400 warriors, but it sure felt like it. And I had been fighting against him for years. This, I wrote this talk in the last week, but it was been developed over the last 15 years of my life. So God had a plan for my life, and he has a plan for yours as well, and it, but it requires an interaction with God, and we're going to get that in interaction. So let's see, but we want to see first how Jacob handles it. 
So we go to our verse. So Jacob was left alone. He's tired and alone. And a man wrestles with him till daybreak. Who is this man? Well, we find out, learn later on, that this is God in a human form, which is called a theophany. It's similar to when God came and met with Abram and told him he was going to have children. He was going to have a son. And what is, what is the wrestling match? Well, it's an outward manifestation of, what, of the struggle that is raging within Jacob to obey God. A battle that has finally come to its climax. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. God came in a form that allowed Jacob to physically wrestle him all night. Yet he also showed Jacob that he could disable him at will. He is saying, Jacob, you do not understand my power. You are trying to limit me to your human abilities, to your manipulative human abilities. But I am God and my glory is far beyond your wildest imaginations. So the question is, why did God hit Jacob in the hip? You know, he could have hit him in the heart, stopped his heart. Well, the reason he didn't hit him in the heart is because the whole purpose was to protect Jacob. Jacob's his boy, right? He needs Jacob. So why didn't he hit him in the head? Well, then the lesson would be over and Jacob would be knocked out. And we didn't want that. Why didn't he hit him in the hand? Because you're going to see he's going to need his hands later. Instead, he hits him in the hip. All right? And in wrestling and other, many, in wrestling and other fighting arts and in sports, your hip is where your power is at. It's delivered up from the ground through your hip. So when throwing a punch, you'll hear a good coach say, Put your hip into it. Throw your hip into it. Otherwise, it's just an arm punch. It's very weak. When you're wrestling, you use your hips to control your opponent. And, you throw, and if you can get a good hip throw, you will hurt your opponent very hard you will, as you drive him to the ground. And when you're in a, you see the MMA guys in jiu-jitsu, when they hook in an arm bar, they throw their hip to break that opponent's arm. All right? Do you get the point? The hip is very vital in a wrestling match. And it's where it represents Jacob, Jacob's, all his power, all his human abilities, all the, everything that's been him is, is tied up in that hip. And God dislocates it and takes away his base. He takes away his foundation, everything that he, in his human form, has used for his power. So Jacob is completely exhausted, physically exhausted. He's like... I can't do it anymore. I can't carry the load anymore. My foundation, the foundation I've relied on all my whole life has been ripped away from me. It no longer supports me. I've been, my, his base has been disabled. Has this happened to you? Has God disrupted your foundation? Has he ever wiped out your human abilities that you relied on, your strength, your intellect, your charisma, your wealth, your career? your charm, anything that you were using to get what you wanted and saying, oh, but this is a gift of God. I'm, I'm, you know, using this. Is he doing it now to you? So now, after God disabled Jacob's hip, in this fallen state, Jacob has two choices. He can push away and retreat and, and live to fight another day. Or he can do the next thing. 
and grab onto God. And Jacob chose to reach out and grab onto God. Which is exactly what God wanted him to do in the first place. You see, God instigated the fight. In verse 24, it says, a man wrestled with Jacob. It's not Jacob found a man to wrestle with. A man wrestled with Jacob. God instigates these engagements to get us to hold on to him. And there's three parts to this wrestling match. Three, three people actually involved in this wrestling match. You, the two made sense, God and Jacob, but the third is Esau. Esau has a very crucial role in this. So if it weren't for Esau and his 400 fighting men, Jacob would have kept keeping on with his trying to manipulate God. But God used the feud that Jacob had created, that Jacob had created between him and his brother, and he used that to bring him into this wrestling match with God. Do you have an Esau right now who God is using to bring you closer to him? What is he using right now to get you to come to the wrestling match with him? So back to the match, because it's really getting good now. We got Jacob disabled, and with Jacob clinging on to God, God says a strange thing to me. As Jacob's holding on, he says, let go of me. Why would God say, let go of me? Is, it, is he just a cruel God? No, but he's seen, he's seen Jacob all these years in his, all his trickster ways. And he goes, I want you to, this needs to be what you want. You need to hold on to me. And then a statement and a question are made that are, that are just fantastic. God says, let me go. And Jacob cries, I will not let you go until you bless me. Wait a minute. Didn't Jacob already get a blessing 20 years ago when he fled his, his family? Yeah, but he was using his tricks. And he wasn't going under his own name. He's now holding on to God and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. I'm holding on to you till you bless me. I'm all alone, God. I can't let you go. All my troubles are coming after me, and I will have nothing left. I just need you, Lord. I need you, Lord, to bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me, until you bless my soul. In the New Testament, we often see Jesus, when confronted, employing a, a, a unique technique of questioning the questioner. To clearly define what the questioner is com- where the questioner is coming from. And this is one of those situations. And as Jacob is holding on, I won't let you go to bless me. God asks him a question. What is your name? Who are you? Who am I going to bless? Ravi Zacharias does a really good job at explaining this, and I want to just quote from him. It's from, Can Man Live Without God? Think of all that God could have said by way of reprimand. Instead, he merely asked for Jacob's name. God's purpose in raising this question contains a lesson for all of us, too profound to ignore. In fact, it dramatically altered Old Testament history. In asking for the blessing from God, Jacob, compelled by God, God's question to relive the last time he had asked for a blessing, the one he had stolen from his brother. The last time Jacob was asked for his name, the question had come from his earthly father. Jacob had lied on that occasion and said, I am Esau, and stole the blessing. 
Now he found himself, after many wasted years of running, running through life, looking over his shoulder, before an all-knowing God, an all-seeing Heavenly Father, once more seeking a blessing. Jacob fully understood the reason and the indictment behind God's question, and he answered, My name is Jacob, supplanter, deceiver. You have spoken the truth, God said, and you know very well what your name signifies. You have been a duplicitous man, deceiving everyone everywhere you went. But now that you acknowledge the real you, I can change you, and I will make a great nation out of you. See, greatness in the eyes of God is always preceded by humility. There's no way for you or me to, or anyone to attain greatness until we have come to him. So God asked Jacob his name not because he didn't know it. He wanted to know if Jacob knew it. He wanted to know if Jacob was ready to come to grips with who he really was or whether he was going to continue to fight the Lord. And this is, all, this is the point we all need to arrive at. We need to realize that we are we are, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to realize that we are the problem and we need someone to change us. It is then and only then that we receive our new name. And in Jacob's case, he was given the name Israel, which means he struggles with God, or God prevails. His new name was a reminder of this encounter and a lesson that we need God. And to everyone who believes today, God gives a new name also. We are changed from sinner to saint, from rebel to friend, from enemy to son. But our story isn't over. So Jacob, Jacob, in verse 30, calls the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. What does face to face mean? It isn't, sure isn't Facebook. It isn't Twitter. It isn't WeChat or Snapchat or any email or phone calls. No, it's an eye-to-eye, mano-a-mano relationship. And when you wrestle, you don't wrestle from a distance. You wrestle up close and personal with someone. And God wants us to have a face-to-face. He wants to have a face-to-face with you. God wants you to know him, and he wants you to, to know who you are, and the only way is through humbly coming through to him face-to-face. You see, when, and it says a new day is dawning for our character Jacob, except now he has a new name, a new identity, and a new walk. He will always walk with this limp because of his hip. And when you wrestle with, your, with God, your walk should be different, and it should be identifiable to those around you. Just like Jacob's encounter with God, Jacob's encounter with God was the beginning of his transformation just like mine was 15 years ago. God sought me out, just like he sought Jacob. He began his transformational work in my life. And this process was not a one-night event. It, it, wasn't, it isn't a 90-day plan. You start here, and you're going to have abs over here. This is a long trans- transformational process that God uses. Remember, I'm that boy who was wrestling on the couch who was told to get off and didn't get off. I have a constant problem of doing this. Since then, God and I have had, actually have had several wrestling matches. But one of the things that I've learned is to quickly go to grabbing him instead of fighting with him all the time. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who works in you <clears throat> to will and to act in order to fill, fulfill his good purpose. So now that Jacob has, fin you know, has finished this wrestling match and he's on a level plane, he's good with God right now. They're straight, right? Everything's over. No, because even though he's got it with God, everything's good with God, he still has to face Esau. The difference this time, we have to still face our problems that are in front of us. But this time, God is with him. This time, he's in with him. It's God's will. And, <clears throat> and he goes before Esau, asking for forgiveness. When we wrong someone, we need to still get straight with, we need to get straight with the Lord, but we also have a responsibility to that person. Now, now, many of you might be thinking, well, you know, wrestling with God, that probably isn't a good Christian thing to do. We shouldn't be wrestling with God. Let me take you to the New Testament to a story about our Savior, Christ, Jesus Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that, this story is so important, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I read, I'm going to read from Mark 14, 32 to 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, in the garden... Christ wrestles with the Lord and asks, is there any other way? He asked three times, and the Bible says it was so intense that he was sweating blood. This is how serious his wrestling match was with God. But the, what, what was the difference between Jacob's wrestling match and our wrestling matches with God and Christ's wrestling match? Jesus' Esau was not due to Jesus' previous actions. It was our sins and our transgressions. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. I don't know exactly how this conversation went between God and Jesus, but I'm pretty sure that when God asked him the question, what is your name? I know what he said. He said, I am Emmanuel, God with us. I am the Messiah, the anointed one. I am prophet, priest, and king. I am the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And if you don't know this Jesus, don't get in your car today and leave without talking to somebody about it. Don't let another moment pass without knowing what your name is. God knows your name and he wants you to know your name. Don't go another day without having your walk changed, without the insurance of Jesus. If you've been in a wrestling match, which I get into too with God lately, I guarantee many of you have, instead of wrestling with God for control, just hold on to him. Put all your strength into holding on to him. And when your grip is weak because the world is pulling you away, just cry out for him to give you more strength and ask him to bless you. Father, I won't let you go until you bless me. Change me, Lord. I submit my life to you. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for placing Esau, Esau's in front of us that bring us closer to you. Thank you for wrestling with us. Thank you for only disabling our hips when you could do so much worse. Thank you for allowing us to hold on to you when all seems lost. Thank you for knowing our name. May you change our lives because we were here today. And may we never walk the same again. We ask for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.